Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to be talking about sharing the truth in love, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, Angela has provided a sermon outline with the scripture on it. You can read it there. The Word of God says this, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, there's our key phrase for this morning, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I don't know how much you know about the Middle Ages. Perhaps your background for the study of the Middle Ages is uh, Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail and doesn't go much beyond that. A shrubbery, a shrubbery. Yes, we must have a shrubbery. But um, only the informed and the truly elite understand that. But the Spanish Inquisition came out of the Middle Ages. It's one of the most tragic and inexcusable abuses of power in the history of Christianity. The background for this reign of terror was that Spain, the region of Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, had been ruled by Muslims, the Moors, for several centuries. And then the Catholic forces, the Christian forces, began fighting back. And eventually they expunged all the Muslim rulers out of Spain and took, took it back over again. Some Muslims and some Jews who stayed behind converted to Christianity. But there was a suspicion that some of them may have been still practicing Islam or Judaism in private. So the Spanish Inquisition was set up under the authority of the church to try to root out these heretics, people who claimed to be Christians but really weren't. And in 1480, the Spanish Inquisition began to do its work. In that first year of 1480, 300 people were burned at the stake. The most famous inquisitor was a man named Tomas de Torquemada. The name Torquemada, if you know much about history, rings through the ages as a symbol of cruelty and violence. He was a Dominican priest famous for his unrestrained cruelty and the use of torture to extract confessions. He used methods like this, suspending the victim by their wrist with their hands held by, tied behind their back to extract a confession. They used a primitive form of waterboarding. They used the rack to stretch victims out on the rack. But, oh, don't worry, they had a time limit. They only limited the tortures to 15 minutes at a time. In their frenzy to oppose heresy, the Inquis inquisitors, the Spanish Inquisition, would often arrive in a town unannounced. And when they showed up, they would give everyone a couple of hours to repent of their sins. And those who confessed received a lighter punishment, lighter I use that term uh, lightly itself. Uh, they had to do everything from a forced pilgrimage to sometimes even a public whipping. Quite often, people were accused without any evidence because you see what happened in the Spanish Inquisition. If you were found guilty of heresy, 
your land and your property went to someone else. So sometimes it became a tool by which other people were getting rich off accusing their neighbors. This is how gossip works. Furthermore, even if someone did confess, they had to prove their repentance was real by naming other heretics, real or imagined. And if you didn't name someone else, you got tortured some more. So what happened was people just started naming folks that hadn't done anything. They just wanted to get out of torture. The Spanish Inquisition. Why do I mention that? Well, their goal was to root out heresy and their goal was correct doctrine. It is a noble and a good thing to desire to have correct doctrine and not to be heretical, to teach the truth. But the Bible never, ever authorizes us to use violence in the name of Jesus to spread the gospel message. This is absurd. So here you have these people in the name of God torturing other people for supposedly righteous reasons. But what they failed to read was Ephesians 4.15, which says we are to share the truth in what? Hardly anything loving about waterboarding and hardly anything loving about stretching someone else out on the rack and forcing a confession and forcing them to name other conspirators real or imagined. And from that example, you and I can learn what we should not be like as Christians and the attitude we should not carry as we stand for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, just a few small verses, the Apostle Paul teaches us about sharing the truth in love and how we can share the truth in love with our friends and our neighbors and that Wichita might know this church shares the truth in love. So together, you and I are going to learn this morning how to share the truth in love. You have an outline in your bulletin. Follow along, if you will. First of all, to get some context, in verse 14, he starts talking about false teaching. And the first thing we need to know about sharing the truth is that there is, in fact, error out there in the world. False teaching and error leads to ruined lives. So Paul wants us to share the truth, and he sets that in context of describing the ruin and the destruction that comes to someone who listens to a lie from the world or the devil. Notice what it says. That reminds you as well, in Ephesians, the main theme is we are saved by what? Saved by grace, through faith. Not, that not of works. That not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. So we're saved by grace. This central doctrine is at the core of Christian proclamation. And there is an urgency in sharing the Christian message of salvation by grace. But verse 14 stops and warns us about the immediate danger that occurs when someone believes a lie. There is a future danger, hell. But in verse 14, Paul's really talking about the dangers for today. What happens in someone's life today when they believe a lie? Three things. First of all, you see the immaturity of a life based on lies. Look at verse 14 and it says that hence... Uh, we, as a result, henceforth, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves. That word children is interesting. You are aware that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus Christ says that if anyone wants to be converted, they have to become like a child. We should have a childlike simplicity to our faith. So in that case, Jesus uses the word child in a, in a positive way. And so there's a sense that we should be childlike when we come to Jesus and are just an innocent trusting in what Jesus has done for us and believing in him. 
But here in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul doesn't use the word child in a positive way as it is elsewhere in the Bible. Here it's used negatively to describe immaturity. The idea here, the word child refers to someone who has not reached the appropriate age of developmental maturity yet. They are immature. They are stuck back at a, a point of childlike immaturity in their faith. They are foolish and they lack experience and they lack insight. So let me try to put it this way. If you are at the grocery store and a mother is in front of you with her maybe three-year-old child sitting there in the buggy and the child reaches out for a Snickers candy bar and as the child reaches out his hand for the Snickers candy bar, the mother might gently swat his hand or she might firmly say no. And you know what happens next? The crying, the weeping, the sobbing. I want the candy bar. I want the candy. And if there's grandparents there, the child gets the candy bar. But I don't know what happens to you grandparents. I mean, good night. That's like aliens abducted my parents because the same parents that raised me were not the parents of my grandparents of my children. It's bizarre. But... The child reaches out his hand and the mother says no or gently swats the hand and the child begins to cry. Now, nobody in the grocery store really thinks that's odd because that's what three-year-olds do. They cry and they pout when they don't get their way. Can you imagine a scene if a couple who've been married about 40 years, they come to the checkout counter and the husband, the wife, and they're using the Dave Ramsey envelopes with cash to pay for groceries and the husband reaches out his hand for a Snickers bar and the wife says... We don't have enough money in the cash envelope to buy milk, bread, and the Snickers bar. So you can't have the Snickers bar. Can you imagine what people would think if that grown man started pouting and he put out his lip, I want my Snickers bar. I can't have my Snickers bar crying. Everyone would think this is really odd. Now, I'm sure that's not really happened to anyone here. It would be odd if it did. Although some of you wives might suggest that you've had a similar conversation where your husband did pout when you said things like, we can't afford the Harley Davidson or we can't afford the bass boat. And he went around for about two weeks, I want my bass boat, I want my Harley Davidson, I can't get it. Okay, so some, perhaps some of you have seen that. But the fact is, when children act that way, it's developmentally correct for that age. When adults act that way, something's wrong. And so there is an, an appropriate level of maturity that should come the longer we walk with Jesus. We should look more and more like Jesus, be conformed every day more closely to the image of Christ. Spiritually, some people are just that immature, though, as a 40-year-old man pouting at a uh, checkout counter because he can't have a Snickers bar. I've met people that were unable to establish the right priorities in life and their house was in bankruptcy and they could not keep a job. And then they would show up in a brand new $45,000 Ford pickup truck when their house is in bankruptcy. Something's wrong. They're stuck at a childish stage. I've met people that have read the Bible all their life and somebody comes along and they watch some TV preacher that tells them something and they believe that and uh, without even checking their scriptures, that's immaturity. There is the danger of immaturity. False teaching leads to immaturity. But not only does it lead to immaturity, it leads to instability. Notice what else Paul says. He not only uses the analogy of children, he talks about, he uses a nautical analogy. Now he talks about the ocean. That we henceforth should no more be children. There's the immaturity. Here's the instability. Tossed to and fro. <clears throat> Carried about with every wind of doctrine. Notice what it says, tossed to and fro. This is language of the sea. 
These are nautical themes. It's an unstable life. Someone's tossed here and there. They're just at mercy to the winds and the waves. There's no direction. They're being pushed in every direction. It's an instable life. October 1st, 2015 was one of the great tragedies in American uh, maritime history in the last 25 years. A ship, the uh, Pharaoh, the El Pharaoh, was a cargo ship going from Jacksonville, Florida to Puerto Rico. And the captain set the ship off in direct course to try to sail through Hurricane Joaquin. And the ship sank tragically. All 33 hands were lost on board. The USS, uh, excuse me, the U.S. Coast Guard determined that the Captain Michael Davidson misjudged the strength of the hurricane and should have changed course because he's sailing into a hurricane with 150 mile an hour winds. Transcripts of the crew's conversation. I didn't know this. A lot of aircraft industry here in Wichita, and you're aware of black boxes on airplanes. I didn't know this. These sailing ships have a black box, if you will, that records the crew's conversation up there in the, uh, the deck driving the ship. It's amazing. So we actually have an exact dialogue of what went on the last three hours before the ship sank. The transcripts of the crew's conversation reveal Deep anxiety on their part. They thought their captain made a bad decision. Looking at the storm on radar, second mate Daniel Randolph said, I don't know any other ships sailing right into that like we are. That's a direct quote. At 4.10 a.m. in the morning, the captain had been asleep, and he returned to the bridge and found everyone very anxious. And he'd done some sailing up in Alaska, and here's a direct quote. He said, oh, there's nothing bad about this ride. This is every day in Alaska. He didn't worry about it. Kept sailing right into the storm, didn't change course. Three hours later, they lost power. They had to abandon ship. Why? Because they ignored the obvious danger and they were tossed about in the sea. These are 30, 40, and 50-foot waves sweeping over the boat. One of the last words on the recorder is a man trying to get out of the cabin where they're driving the ship up there on the bridge. He's trying to get out, and the last recorded words are, I'm a goner. I'm a goner. It's haunting why is that? They sailed into the storm. They lost power. They're pushed all over the place. They're just shoved at the mercy of 150 mile an hour winds and 40 foot waves and they had no direction and it cost them their life. Some of you are getting pushed around like that. You're just, you're instability. Some preacher comes along and questions whether or not you can actually be eternally secure and that's a wave and it pushes you off somewhere. Somebody knocks on your door and they tell you they've got a new book that was left out of the Bible and you need to read this and that wave pushes you along somewhere. Somebody comes on TV, some atheist like Stephen Hawking and he says there's no God and there's no order or purpose to the universe and that pushes you off in another direction. These waves just shoving you around. Some Hollywood... Uh, uh, or Nashville star comes along and this person suggests to you that the party life is what you should embrace and you embrace the party life and you get shoved around and you're just being pushed to the left and the right doctrinally and morally and ethically you're just unstable. Listen, there comes a point in time in life when you have to make up your mind that you're going to put your faith deep down in the anchor of Jesus Christ. Enough of this being shoved around. Enough of this world pushing you and breaking you and just wandering aimlessly through life until you wind up at an untimely end and an early death. Listen, the, every anchor in the world on any ship has a strength limit and given the right conditions, they can all break. But in Jesus Christ, 
Christ. You have an anchor for life sunk deep down in an empty tomb on the rock of his resurrection and his anchor holds whatever the storm, whatever the confusion, whatever the chaos, the anchor of Jesus Christ doesn't break. And You don't have to be pushed around and you don't have to be instable in life. You can put an anchor down in Jesus. Oh, there's good news in the gospel, but not only is there immaturity and their instability, notice what else? There is this intentional deceit of those who tell lies. Look at the end of verse 14. And carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I want you to look at a word. Notice the word craftiness. Do you see that word craftiness? It is a word that literally used outside of the Bible back in those days to describe someone who played dice, as in gambling, throwing dice. And so the idea is the word became a symbol for the sort of trickery that often accompanies gambling. Now, I don't gamble. I hope you don't either. When I was in high school, there were some boys got to playing poker, and there's this one boy that seemed to win more frequently than other people, and some folks started noticing what was happening, and they realized he won more frequently when he brought his own cards. And what this 14-year-old boy had done is got his hand on a, a deck of cards. On the calligraphy on the back of the cards were little hidden images that he learned to look for that could tell you if it was an ace, king, queen, or jack, all the high cards. So he could tell what other people had in their hands. He's winning by cunning, although... Uh, things didn't work out too well for him in the end. But he, um, he's winning by trickery. And that's the same word that this is right here. It's sort of sleight of hand. It's, it's a little trickery. Uh, some of these false teachers are deceiving you. They play a little religious three-card Monty, and uh, they shift things around, and they change the meaning of words. And it's intentional. They know they're lying. It leads to an unstable life. And so here you have this picture of the immaturity, the instability, the intentional deceit that all leads to error. And that's why verse 15 is so important because there's so much error. And notice the shift. At the end of verse 14, he talks about this intentional deceit. Uh, notice that they says their deceitful screen, scheming, their craftiness, their trickery. But then he shifts. And that we discover the second truth is this. The antidote to false teaching is to speak the truth in love. Notice the contrast. He ends verse 14 talking about crafty scheming. And then in verse 15 he says, but speaking the truth in love. So let me give you a couple of little ideas to contrast here. First, if you have all truth and no love, you get into legalism. You say, what is legalism? Legalism, or, or legalist, and I grew up in a legalistic church. My wife did too. Legalism just invites you to break rules. So when my, um, when my in-laws got radically saved and, and gloriously saved, and they're sweet Christian people today. I had the sweetest uh, in-laws any guy could ever ask for. But their first couple of years are trying so hard. I was such a radical life change for them. They decided they didn't want their girls to wear anything but dresses all the time. That was what they're supposed to do. So that just invites you to break rules. My wife, Lisa, rebel that she is, would roll up her blue jeans under a slip-on skirt, run out of the house with a skirt on. As soon as she got off the bus, pull the skirt off and roll her jeans down and wear them all day long. Legalism invites you to break those sort of... Legal, here's the deal. Legalists want you to look more like them. And the goal of discipleship is that you look like Jesus. Legalists want you to look like them. Well, uniformity, everybody walk the same, look the same, and we're kind of like a group of clones. We're just marching out, just kind of like this, and we all look the same. And 
But that's legalism. When I was a boy, here's a picture of legalism. Can I give you a snapshot of legalism? First of all, I can define legalism in one word for all the women in the room if you grew up in a Baptist church. That is the word kulaks. Do you know what kulaks are? Kulaks is an independent Baptist grief that has been assaulted upon fashion of the United States. I'm just telling you. How many of you know what kulaks are? Can I get that? Some of you who don't, God bless you. It's these long kind of blooming pants things. They're horrid. Sure. Anyway, I was a teenage boy. They seventh grade. My church went to Peach State Bible Camp, led by Brother John. Ha! I Smith. Ha! Did anybody know what a ha preacher is like? You know what I'm talking? About? Every other word. Ha! Did anybody grow up with that sort of preaching? I did. Man, if he wasn't sweating, he wasn't preaching. Uh, listen, you better have your Bible open because sooner or later he's going to get to every verse in it in one sermon. I mean, it's just all over the place, right? But Brother John I. Smith, hi, and we're at Peace State Bible Camp. It was in Georgia in July. And there's a reason nobody moved to Georgia until air conditioning was invented. I'm telling you. And it's 100 degrees. But could we wear shorts every day? No, we couldn't wear shorts. Why? Because we love God and we're going to wear blue jeans. Of course, we're passing out from heat exhaustion. We'll meet God sooner. But, uh, and we didn't have mixed bathing. They let us go to the pool twice in the camp. But all the boys could go at one time and they had to get out. Then all the girls could go at one time. No, we're not going to have any mixed bathing. Amen. And I always wondered, how would that work in the Atlantic Ocean? Did I have to wait for all the girls to get out of the Atlantic Ocean before I got it? How did that work? I never, I was always a little confused about that. That's legalism. If you have all truth and no love, it leads to legalism. If you have all love and no truth, it leads to liberalism. Some people have abandoned the, and the desire to love and embrace people. They've abandoned any semblance of truth, any idea and any sense of truth. We don't want to do that either. That's a mistake. What we want is this. Christian proclamation speaks the truth in love. Would you look at that word speaking right there, the truth? Do you see that phrase speaking the truth in verse 15? Those three words, speaking the truth, are actually one word in Greek. It is a participle. It's kind of odd in Greek, but it basically means this. You are truthing truthing that you are living out truth both in your actions and your speech so you're speaking the truth but then it's qualified by two words in what speaking the truth in what now we as Christians don't have a good reputation of that I have failed in my own life there have been many times in my life when I was more concerned about winning an argument than helping a friend I was not speaking the truth in love because I'm smart and I'm also a smart aleck. I once heard David Jeremiah say there's no room for uh, sarcasm in the Christian life. And that really bothered me until I read 1 Kings chapter 18 because Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. You remember this? You know, go wake him up, downslider. Maybe your God's asleep. I'm like, you know, Brother Jeremiah, I got one biblical example. I might be proof texting, but I'm building on that. Um, so I can be smart alecky and I got a quick wit and I got a big mouth. And I know how to outthink a lot of people, and I can say some smart things, but that's not speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, truthing in love, that word love is agape. You know that word, agape. It is the love of God. 
It is not eros, it's not phylos, it's not storge, the love for a family. It is agape. It is a love that desires the best in another person. It is a love that loves someone even though they are not desirable. They are not attractive. You love them anyway. And agape is defined by three nails and a crown of thorns and a spear in the side and an empty tomb. And he is not here. He's risen. That's agape. Speaking the truth in love. So here's a couple of questions I have to ask myself. Maybe they'll help you. If I'm speaking truth to someone, am I doing it because I want to win that argument? Or am I doing it because I desire their best? Can I repeat that again? It's a good question for evaluation. Am I speaking truth in this person's life because I want to win an argument? Or because I desire their best? Now that doesn't, listen, it doesn't mean that there isn't an appropriate time to speak truth. There is. One time I'm ministering to a soldier. And he, he claimed to be a Christian. He had a very, very wrong-headed idea on a particular ethical issue. I don't want to get into the issue because that would distract you. But he had a very wrong-headed idea. I'm ministering to him. We're trying to go through Scripture, praying with him. And finally, I just had to reach a point where I said, Look, there's not a Greek or a Hebrew scholar that agrees with the ethical position you're advocating. There's not an Old Testament or New Testament scholar that thinks you're handling that text right. There is not anyone in the history of Christianity who thinks you're handling it right. Of all the major thinkers, Augustine and Calvin and John Wesley and everybody else in between from every theological stripe, no one says what you're suggesting is a good idea. And I can't even point to any major denomination in the United States that actually says what you're doing is right. So the, the Hebrew guys, the Greek guys, the Old Testament guys, the New Testament guys, all the great fathers of church history and every major denomination in the United States says you're wrong. But if you think you're right, go for it. For it. See what I'm saying? At times you have to confront false teaching. One time I'm witnessing to a guy and he starts telling me, Genesis 1:26, God created man in his own image. That means aliens. Aliens came down. The word Elohim means aliens. And I, I spent about 30 minutes in the heat of Afghanistan trying to explain to the soldier, no, the word Elohim is a, it's always in the plural. It's a plural of majesty. It refers to God. It's not referring to, to aliens. Doesn't mean that you don't confront error when you see it but you have to do it in love and you know what the bible says about love in first corinthians 13 love is what love is patient love is what kind one of the things paul says about love is it's not easily offended you ever get offended when someone says something negative about jesus and you won't bow up and i have my rights and I have, I have failed in that so many times. The issue is not I'm right and you're wrong. The issue is they are lost. The issue is there's a real heaven. There really is a heaven to gain. There really is a hell to shun. And listen, the cross is an offense. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 1 say? It says this, the cross is what? Foolishness to this world. You know what it says? Do you remember the first time you heard the gospel? The first time you heard the gospel was your response, oh, wow, I've never, of course I'm a sinner. Oh, I'm going to hell. Of course, okay, I need Jesus. No. Your first response is, I don't believe this. You people are nuts. I'm not buying this. But people were patient. People were kind. They were not easily offended. Speaking the truth in love means that we are patient and kind. And we have not done a good job. I have not done a good job of that in my life. We as Christians have not done a good job of that in the United States. Well, the environment where truth is cultivated 
as in a loving, unified church. I just want to say a couple things, and I'm going to move to a close. Verse 16, he talks about body language. That's church language. First of all, he talks about corporate maturity. Look at it in verse 16. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together. That phrase, fitted and held together, is terminology used to describe a... um, Uh, blocks that were chopped so they would uh, fit together. The edges were rubbed off. They didn't use mortar back in those days. They had to edge and shape the blocks so they would uh, fit together. And so that's what God's doing. He's fitting us together. And then notice what it says, uh, being fitted and held together. That little phrase held together was used outside the Bible to refer to an argument that was sound and had lots of evidence. And so the idea is that God is piling up evidence. If you're not a Christian today and you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, what, look around this room. You say, well, why should I believe the gospel? Look around this room. God has piled up some evidence. There are people in this room that used to be impure and then Jesus took over their life and they discovered the power of purity and a holy living and that's evidence. And there's someone in this room that used to be an alcoholic and they used to be addicted to drugs and Jesus Christ stepped in and changed their life and now they're they're sober and they love their family and God's piling up evidence all around you. There's trophies of grace in this room and God's just piling up the evidence. This is the gospel. Look at what God does in these people's lives. It is a corporate maturity. And then it's continual growth when the church gets mature. Notice what it says. Making increase of the body, the old King James says, causing the growth of the body. A mature church is a growing church. And then notice what it says, consistent in love. Notice how it ends in verse 16. Building each other up in love, consistent in love. That the church shares the truth in love. And then when somebody gets saved and gets baptized, we are consistent in love. I want to say a few things about four issues in our culture right now about sharing the truth in love. I teach ethics for a living. That's what I do. So I'm going to talk about four moral issues. I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. I am pro-life. I believe in the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Listen carefully. It's not enough to scream at people. We have to walk beside post-abortive men and post-abortive women and tell them, yes, abortion's a sin. Here's the good news. Abortion was nailed to the cross and the blood of Jesus is sufficient to forgive that sin. We want to share the truth in love. That we walk along beside. Listen, when you've got a crisis pregnancy, there are no easy answers. But there are right and there are wrong answers. And a choice for life is always the right choice. But it's not enough to say, don't abort. We have to walk along beside you and say, as some people in this church have done, we want to adopt into a family. You're never more like Jesus when you adopt. Because we got adopted into God's family. We're grafted in. And so it's not enough to be pro-life. We have to walk beside people and care for them. I will tell you this. When you live in a culture that devalues life on one end of the spectrum with abortion and starts demanding that we end life on the other end of the spectrum with euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, you listen to this preacher. Everybody else in the middle better watch out. But we have to speak the truth in love. And we've not been loving I'm talking about us. I'm not talking to y'all. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about I haven't been loving. To speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love about marriage. God designed marriage. It's one man. It's one woman. It's intended to be for life. That, uh, that, that is contrary to a whole lot of things in our culture. 
But we're supposed to share the truth in love. There are people that experience same-sex attraction. They never asked for it. They didn't do anything to ask for it. They don't know why they have it. But we have to share the truth in love that God's way is always the best way regardless of how we feel. Feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are deceiving. I put my trust in the Word of God. Only that's worth believing. We share the truth in love. We share the truth in love about the sanctity of life. And we share the truth in love about the sanctity of marriage. And we share the truth in love about the sanctity of sex. This world's telling, every, every song these kids are listening to, they're being told, give yourself away, sacrifice your impurity on the altar of pleasure, just give it all away. And we have to speak the truth in love to teenagers and young adults and people who've, who've been told a lie by this world. And remember, they have been lied to. And we have to speak the truth in love with a broken heart about sexual purity. We have to speak the truth in love about racism and anti-Semitism, that these are not acceptable for Christians that as Christians, that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Do you remember the song we used to sing when we were children? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves what? All the children. And we have to speak this word in love. And I'm pleading for a church that will speak the truth in love. That Wichita, Kansas, if they didn't know anything else about Emmanuel Baptist Church, here's the one thing we know. Those people love you. Those people love you. Now, they're going to tell you the truth, and you may not like it, but they love you. Let me try to pull this together in an example. When I was a young man, I got called to preach when 1988... 1991, I was about to go away to seminary. We had a revival at our church. An old evangelist whom you've never heard of, his name was Jess Henley. And he would preach and weep. And he knew the Greek New Testament almost by heart. And I, I grew up with preachers that would shout and yell. And I'd always told seminary would kill you. And here's this guy preaching, 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 quoting, parsing Greek verbs with tears in his eyes. But he had a nickname. His nickname, a lot of people derisively called him Hellfire Henley because he preached on hell a lot. He was 85 years old when I met him, and he preached a revival. I've never been in a revival like that where God came down, and he would weep. And here's what I remember. He talked about hell, but there were tears in his eyes. And I came away convinced that man cared about people. And he wasn't preaching in anger or bitterness, but out of a deep conviction of the gospel. And he preached with tears in his eyes. And I'm begging you that Emmanuel Baptist Church would be known to be a church that spoke the truth in love. And when we talked about all these issues, there was weeping and there were tears. There were tears sowing with tears that we care for you. And we're broken about what sin's doing in your life because we've been there ourselves and we know how bad it can get. I'm going to ask Lisa to come. I'm going to ask Brother Mark to come. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking up, no one looking around. Ask no one leave. This is the invitation time. Please don't leave. Listen carefully. I'll talk to you about a couple of things. First of all, you're here and you've never been saved. You've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm inviting you this morning. All these aisles lead right to the front. Brother Andy, Pastor Andy, Pastor Ryan's here. Sister Nikki is here. We have people that will pray with you. And you can believe on Jesus today. And your sins can be forgiven. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. And we are a group of broken people telling other broken people the blood of Jesus is sufficient. I invite you to come and believe on Jesus. Some of you have been saved, but you've never been baptized in the way the Bible says. And we invite you to come this morning, making your public profession that you've been saved and you need to be baptized. Some of you, this is the church God has told you to join. 
and you know it, and we need you to reach this community for Christ. And we're not complete till you join with us. So we're inviting you to come. I'm going to pray. If you have any decision, we're going to stand and sing. And while they're singing, you come. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us share the truth in love. I pray you'd change my heart, God. Make me more loving. God, make me more compassionate. I pray that I would try to win friends and not just win an argument. And Father, I'm praying in the name of Jesus that you save people. There's men and women here today, boys and girls here today that need to be saved. They need Jesus in their life. They need to be saved. I'm praying they'll be saved. And I'm praying for folks that need to unite with us as we try to reach this community for Christ. God, I pray that they would join with us as we go arm in arm, locked hand in hand, preaching Christ in this community. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.